Uh, good morning, uh, listening out there on Facebook and YouTube or podcast during the week. Um, let's just pray as we start, uh, settle our hearts after just that beautiful worship. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your wonderful presence. We thank you uh, for all the amazing things that, that you bless us with in life, Lord. And right now, Father, we ask uh, that you would settle our minds and our hearts to hear from you profoundly today as we learn more about walking in your ways. Amen. So uh, this week, we're going to continue on with the series, uh, Walk This Way, or as Neil uh, said last week, Mimicking the Master. Uh, and uh, he took it from 1 John 2, verse 6, and I want to read it this morning as we start from the Amplified Version. It says, Whoever says he abides in him ought as a personal debt to walk and conduct himself in the same way in which he walked and conducted himself. So today, I want to look at the subject of power. Now, I'm going to say power now because the rest of the day I will say power. So if you're American friends of mine watching this, power equals power, okay? I might throw that in the odd time just to mix it up. But today we're going to look at power uh, in the context of Jesus. So what do we think that power is today? Is it someone that's in control? Is it someone that's over us? Is it an uh, influencer? Maybe uh, your perspective is someone who's greedy or controlling. Now, we could look at um, power in the context of church history. So um, back in the day, the Christians giving into power, giving into the leaders, what that done. Um, back when Constantine decided that Christianity was going to be the religion of the, of the world, uh, it moved the Christians from the nobodies and the persecuted to the ones that had the power and the ones that everybody wanted to be. Um, they, we could look at how over the years the religious establishment had decided to build empire versus building the kingdom of God. All very interesting and really, really important things for us to know. But this morning what I want to look at in the context of walking this way with Jesus and power is personal and practical implications of that. So the definition of power in the dictionary is the ability to act or produce an effect and so that's what I want to look at today. I want to look at how things over us have power to influence and affect us. Walking in the way of Jesus looks at power differently, which we know. So I want to set the context this morning of what I'm talking about. Henry Nguyen says this about leadership and power. No, I am speaking of a leadership in which power is constantly abandoned in favor of love. I am, I am speaking of a leadership in which power is constantly abandoned in favor of love. So today I want to look at a popular parable, um, and it's the, the story of the good Samaritan. Forgive me, I think I've grown over lockdown. This table seems a bit lower uh, than usual, or my eyesight's getting worse because I'm getting older. I don't know what it is. The Good Samaritan. So if you want to find in your Bible, Luke 10, 25 to 37, and I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. But first, let me set a little bit of context. In the first century, Jews lived in constant tension between the Roman oppressors, the enemy, and their, their uh, neighboring Samaritans, which were their religious enemy. And last week, Neil told us a little bit about the background round of the relationship. And so there were racial and religious tensions 
There were religious discussions, probably more fights going on over the claims of Jerusalem. That sounds familiar in this land. No, that's our city. No, that's our town. No, that's our wall. That kind of thing. And the Jews and Samaritans were like chalk and cheese. They couldn't be any different. The Samaritans, they believed, the Jews believed, had sold out their faith. And hatred was a normal way of life. And so into this, Jesus tells this now familiar parable. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Important, how do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus said, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So it all starts with a question about eternal life, which really none of us can earn. It's a gift from God. But Jesus, like he usually does, I love this. He responds to this man's question with a question. He's asking him to search. He's asking him to think. He's asking him to delve deeper. He doesn't want to just give the answer. And I love that he does that with you and me today. But he actually responded with two questions. What does the Torah say? What does the word of God say? And what do you interpret that to mean? How do you read it? It's a very valid question. How do you read the scriptures today? Is it a list of rules for you to follow? Is it a list of regulations, flexible principles that one day you'll follow and one day you don't? Or is it inspiring stories about this great man, Jesus, and all the things that he accomplished? Or is it a roadmap that leads to Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah? Is it a roadmap that leads to life in fullness and life now where the kingdom invades the everyday and the ordinary? Because that's what it is for me. How we answer that question, what does it say in the word and how do you interpret it, is so important today as it was when Jesus was asking this question. So the first power that I see from this story is the power of choice. The power of choice. What we choose to believe and do is very, very important because it will influence the way we behave, the way we act, the way we respond. Let me give you an illustration. There's a loving couple. Think of the most loving couple that you know. They love each other so, so much. They would die for each other. They're amazing. Neville's sitting here. Neville and Joe, but it's not you because I'm going to give a better story. Are you ready? Now, the best friends of the man come up and they show the husband a picture. And in this picture, his wife is out for a romantic meal with another man. And at the end, there's another picture of them having a loving embrace. But guess what? The picture is photoshopped. It's not real. But the man has the choice. Do I interpret this the way for what I see exactly right in front of me? Or is there something more going on? He has to choose to believe that he understands and knows his wife and knows that this couldn't be real or else it could completely change his behavior and response. Ultimately, the truth may or may not dictate his response or his choice. So let's look a bit further at this. How did the man interpret the scripture that we've just read this morning? He had to ask Jesus who his neighbor was. It seems pretty obvious to you and me who our neighbor was. As Christians, we believe that anyone we come into contact with are our neighbors that we have to show the love of Christ to. 
But we need to remember when we read Scripture, there's always context. And the context of this Scripture goes right back to the Old Testament of Leviticus 19. And the people were told to love your neighbor as yourselves, just as we are being told. But their interpretation of that Scripture was love your fellow Israelites. Love the people that are in your gang, in your group, that are near you, not the outcasts, not the outsiders. And in Jesus' day, most Jews decided to stick with that interpretation. They were choosing to be selective in how they read the scriptures and the choices that they made because of that. And sadly today, religious people still do the same thing. So by asking Jesus this question, he's really asking Jesus, will you give me some boundaries of who's in and who's out? This religious Jew, he obviously already thought, I'm in. I've got it all together. I'm great. I'm following the law of the letter. I can do it all. I'm in. And he was looking for an excuse to validate his behavior, his feelings towards uh, Jesus, towards the Samaritans, towards the Romans. Amy Levine says this, to ask who is my neighbor is a polite way of asking who is not my neighbor or who does not deserve my love, or whose lack of food and shelter can I ignore, or who can I hate? Scott McKnight then says about it, what the scribe is really asking is not just who is my neighbor, but who is pure and who is not. He is asking for a classification system of who is fit for me to love. He wanted the the option to be able to choose to love or not because of how he interpreted the scriptures, interpreted the scriptures. The power of our choice, whether good or bad, will affect our actions, our thoughts, how we read the scriptures, how we put it into action, how we choose to use them um, is either in favor of love or of worldly power. Roxy Cavey, um, and I want to recommend this book this morning, a lot of the ideas this morning are from this, it's called The End of Religion. I would really... Um, urge you to read this. He says this, Jesus knows that if we define our neighbor as just those like us, we will never stretch ourselves beyond those whom it is natural to love. And I'll add on to that, who it is easy to love. Jesus is about to make the outcast the hero of the story, and he not only inverts the power structures, but averts the circle of who is in and who is out. It was a choice, as we read on now in the next part of Luke 10, it was a choice by the religious leaders to walk on, to walk past because they felt it was valid. So this week, or the week that's just passed, what choices have you made to walk past, to ignore, to read into something that you shouldn't be, or to decide this is what this means and it's going to dictate how I behave and so on. But let's read on. Luke 10, verse 30 to 37. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho when he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Now imagine this. This is like going to the pantomime in Belfast. I know we haven't been there for a while. But in the background, the Jews, this is the people they hated. They'd be going, boo, 
true. No, he can't be the hero of the story. The priest should be, the Levite should be, not the Samaritan. But Jesus was turning it upside down and making the hero the one that they despised. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to this man that was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. And the man replied, the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus says, yes, now go and do the same. Keep an eye on my time here. So the second thing that I noticed from this story of the Good Samaritan is the power of rituals, the power of law over love. And if you were on um, just before, as we've done um, communion, uh, Anastasia talked about this, the power of the ritual uh, of communion that had become just another thing they'd done instead of an active living relationship with Jesus and what the emblems actually had become. So before we go any further, let me give you an illustration. Now imagine this, my little Sarah, she's only tiny, she's three years old, but imagine she's 17. I make it emotional thinking about this. She's 17 and she's going to her first formal, or if you're an American watching this, prom, going to her first prom or her first formal. And I go out with her, and this is probably going to be a true story because she's got me wrapped around her little finger, and I get her the best dress that she can imagine, the nicest, most beautiful dress that she's ever seen. But when we get home, she says, Daddy, can I wear this to school tomorrow? And in everyone's amazement, because I'm so soft with her, I say, yes, darling, you can wear the dress to school tomorrow, but there's one rule that you need to follow. Okay, Daddy, what's that rule? You cannot get your dress dirty. So that means you can't play at lunchtime. You need to be careful when you're going to school and coming home from school. You need to be careful when you're eating your food because if it was now when you're three, you'd be all over you. Does that sound fair? Does that sound like a fair rule? I think so. Her response would be, yes, daddy, that sounds like a fair rule. I will not get it dirty. So the next day comes along, Sarah's walking to school. And as she's walking along, she sees one of her best friends who has fallen into a dirty, muddy ditch on their bike and is badly injured. Now, what does Sarah do? Does she follow the rule that I have given her to protect the dress that she is wearing? Very valid rule, it's okay. Or does she help her friend and get her dress dirty? I think if I asked her that when she's 17, she will be at a mature stage of her life where she will say, Daddy, I will choose to help my friend and make sure she's okay because I know that you will get me another dress and it'll be okay. It's a great illustration because I believe that as Christians, we get to the stage of maturity where Jesus trusts us with the decisions that we're making because we're so in love with him and abiding in relationship with him. N.T. Wright says this about the law. The Torah is given for a specific period of time it's then set aside, not because it was a bad thing, now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing uh, whose purpose had been accomplished. The rules were not removed, but transcended with love. When love leads the way and abides, I believe the right decisions will be made. And it's the same with this story of Sarah. The law was there for a good reason, but love trumped the law in that moment. 
the power of religious rituals comes into play in this story because many religious people in Jesus' day, all they wanted to do was keep their dresses clean. They wanted to follow the rules they'd been given. They focused on obeying the rules and they forgot to put love first. Do you know what I was thinking as I read this story? Maybe the, um, the Jewish men that were walking past, they weren't the baddies that we think they were or they were portrayed to be. I was choosing to think the other day that maybe they were really kind, generous, loving men that had got so caught up in these rituals that they had to do to attain uh, their afterlife with God or the, the things they had to do to fit into the community, that they had surpassed their desire to, to be in uh, communion with a loving God. I believe that they could have been very nice uh, man, but I was thinking the same thing could happen to me. I got so caught up in, in the rules and the regulations and the things I think God has, needs me to do or I have to do to please him that I miss the things that he actually genuinely is asking me to do for him. And so this starts to give us an insight into why the religious leaders in the story neglected the obvious need that was in front of them. The power of rituals had overcome the power of love. So let me explain a little bit more about this. From a distance, the rabbis would not have been able to see if this man was dead or alive. So they crossed the road. Well, the first one did anyway. Why? Again, we have to go back to the law in Numbers 5 and Numbers 19, where it tells us that if they touched a dead body, they would be defiled for seven days. Now, the context of these two men where they were working in the temple if they were defiled for seven days, it means they couldn't work, they couldn't serve the people, they couldn't help, the Levite couldn't be in the place of worship. And I think in their heads they were thinking, do you know what, for the good of the masses, for the good of the, the greater numbers of people, I cannot do this. They were validating uh, why they weren't responding. But this is, what, this is what else happens with the power of rituals and, and the law. People were so scared of breaking the law that had been given to them that they started to put more fences around the law just to protect them. So the touching the dead body became, don't get within 10 feet of the body, you know, the barge pole thing. And then the next thing to protect them was actually if your shadow touches a dead body, you're defiled. They weren't laws that were given down to them, but they were laws that were then created to protect them from the law of the law of the law. And so the rituals and the power of them have become dominant in their minds and in their lives. And in their heads, they had a valid excuse for not helping because of their religious rituals that were put ahead of relationship. Now, in our modern-day context, think about that. Think about denominations, religions, things that this church believes versus our church that get in the way of relationship and love. Can I ask you the question, has this really changed today? Marsh Andretti, um, in his book, Practicing the Ways of Jesus, says, For the church, the way of Jesus was revolutionary and countercultural, offering an alternative to the solutions and power structures of the Roman Empire. As the way of Jesus gradually developed into the religion called Christianity, it became defined more by ecclesiastical doctrines and authority structures than as a grassroots movement characterized by love. It lost its first love. So what about you and me? What powers to rituals and beliefs 
hold over you and me? Are you governed by law or love? The way I was thinking about this the other day is like, uh, when I'm out, I don't like dogs. And when I'm out on the bike, I get a wee bit nervous when I'm going past um, people with dogs. Because if they're on a lead, you're happy enough. But usually when a dog's on a lead, it means they're not trusted. I'm not, make, I'm not comparing us to dogs, by the way. Um, but you can see in an owner's eye when a dog's off a lead, whether they're trusted or not when your bike goes past. They're not going to jump at you. You can see it in their faces that they are trusted. And I, I'm trying to get a slight resemblance. I feel it's the same with the law and love. The law was kind of like holding you to make sure you know this is what you do. This is how you behave. This is how you do this. But then when love comes in, when Jesus breaks that, he's saying, I trust you. You're at a place where I know that because love abides in your heart and you're walking close to me, that I trust you to make decisions, to walk as I walked, to be me in the community. And so the church that gave me uh, the good news, I grew up in a Baptist church, it gave me the good news. It really did give you the good news. It taught you the good news. It taught you the scripture. But the church that gave me the good news also gave me some unhealthy stuff. Um, because religion is not perfect. The people that are in it are not perfect. One preacher said this, when you go into a hospital to get better, there is also a good chance that you'll pick up something bad. It's the same with our religious rituals in church. We're called to walk through it with the Spirit and with each other. So there's power in being open and honest about your faith with each other, about your doubts. And you know this, if your religious thoughts deter you from love and the love of God, they're not from Him. If it means that you need protected from God, it's not from God. Broxy again says, if love guides our hearts, rules become redundant. Love embraced as a guiding orientation of other-centeredness will always lead us to do the right thing. Love never fails. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. The third thing that I see from this story of the Good Samaritan is the power of bias. In first century Israel, there wasn't just a religious divide, but there was also a racial, a racial divide. And the clothes that you wore told me who you were. It was a cue for me to be able to look visually and say, you're a Jew, you're a Samaritan, you're rich, you're poor, you're a Roman, whatever, whatever it meant. It was a cue for who you belong to. And so by walking by, the two Jewish men could not distinguish who this man was because he had been beaten and robbed of his clothes. He was simply a person in need. But that wasn't enough for these two Jewish men that were walking past because his value of a person, as a person was secondary to the bias that was at work in their hearts as they passed by. The things that were going on in their head that they didn't even realize as they passed by this man, this human in need, they had a sense of false security in their religious bias. The reason they, I have to serve in the temple, I have to do this, I've got my rituals, I can't go near a dead body. And all this would have been going on in their head as they were walking by. The power of a religious habit over them was ruling their choice and ruling their choice not to love and show mercy. And, you know, we can do the same. We can get stuck in thought patterns. We can get stuck in ways. We can get stuck in views that we do not even realize are happening in our minds and in our hearts. And we become so accustomed to them that our brains do not even see it going on. It comes to the point where guilt and conviction become a distant memory when we get so accustomed to behaviors that we do with our power of bias. 
With this, we don't see things around us that aren't relevant to us. If it doesn't annoy us, it's not relevant to us. If it's not important to us, it's not relevant to us. Our brains block it out. Let me give you an example of that. Uh, back when I was at Queen's University, I used to live um, beside the Botanic Inn or the Botanic Railway Station. And when I first moved in for two weeks, I did not sleep because of the noise of the trains. But after three or four weeks, it got to the point where I could not even hear a train anymore. My brain had naturally blocked out the noise of the train because I'd become so accustomed and it wasn't relevant to me. And for my good, I had to block out the noise of the train. The same thing happens naturally with your brain as you choose to ignore, as you settle into the bias of the things that you like and don't like or the people that you don't want to be with or the people that you look down or the religion you look differently at or whatever it may be. These teachers of the law had let the power of religious rituals, the choices that they were making, and their bias come in the way of walking in the way of Jesus, which is love. Broxy again says this, Jesus' parable therefore shatters the stereotypes of social boundaries and class divisions and renders void any system of religious quid pro quo. Neighbors do not recognize social class or color. Eternal life, the life of the age to come, is that quality characterized by showing mercy for those in need, regardless of race, regardless of region, and with no thought of reward. That means no bias. But this leads to the next bar. Nearly done. The next bar we see in this story is the power of others. The power of what people think of you and me and what that holds over you. Perhaps a simple answer to this story of the two religious men walking by was that they were afraid of what might happen to them. They were afraid of what others would say if they stopped to help. What would it mean for their status in the community? What would it mean for their job, for their influence, for their family? I believe that these men were walking in self-preservation over the fear of others versus love. And so the religious leaders had made the other irrelevant because of their bias. So we can either do that or we can give people power over us. We live in fear of others. I know I'm guilty of that. We live in fear of what the other thinks. But Jesus' heart was to establish a people without fear of the other and bring equality into everyday life for everyone. Timothy Jennings, another book I want to recommend in The God-Shaped Brain. Um, with regards to our brain and the decisions that we make and the biases we have and operating in fear, he says this, those who persist in unhealthy, sinful, selfish course, despite the firing of the conscience, may find greater difficulty extricating themselves from destructive behaviors. This is due to the damaging effects that selfish, selfish and fear-based actions have on the brain. Because the fear-based circuits of the brain produce powerful emotions that can lead to impulsive decision-making or, or, or uh, our emotions are not designed to be in charge of our actions. This is the problem with fear-based decision-making. The emotion circuits dominate and selfishness is chosen instead of the way of love. And I believe that these men were operating from a place of selfishness instead of the way of love. At the end of the story, the religious leader uh, was asked by Jesus, who was the neighbor? And he couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. 
His reply was the one who showed mercy. So fear of the other, our bias, our Richard, uh, the rituals were still making the decision for these men that were walking past. They had power over them. But we're all called to walk in the way of Jesus. And in this story, that's represented by the Samaritan, the outsider, the hated one. But Jesus wasn't worried about what everyone else thought. The power of the other had no influence over Jesus. And can you imagine the whispers that were going on at this time? He's having lunch with who? Whose side is Jesus on? Why is he getting his hands dirty with that filthy woman? He shouldn't even be talking to her at the well. What about Palm Sunday today? Instead of riding in on the big white horse and the victory that he was bringing, he came in in a little lowly donkey. The power of the other was obsolete in Jesus because his power was found in his identity as a son. He could love the unlovable. He could love the outcast. He could love the tax collector without fear of the other. And then this is the last one. The power of love and sacrifice. We see this in the story. This is the most important for me. We see at the end of this story, the power of love and sacrifice. In Jesus' day, an inn could only be found in a town. In this case, the town was Jericho, which was a Jewish town. The Samaritan could not enter this town for fear of his life. And Kenneth Bailey writes this of the situation. The Samaritan is expected to unload the, unload the wounded man at the edges of Jericho and disappear. A Samaritan would not be safe in a Jewish town with a wounded Jew over the back of his riding animal. Community vengeance may be enacted against the Samaritan even if he saved the life of a Jew. He didn't even know if the bandits were away when he went to save the man. He risked his life. He was risking coming back into the community where he was hated. But let me tell you this, the way of Jesus is the way of risky love. The core, central, primary characteristic of God is love. Everything is built on this. And because of his love, he gave. He gave us Jesus. Love doesn't seek for itself. It seeks the others. Love is outward giving. It is outward moving. It is beneficial to the other. This is the key to walking the way of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The greatest love we can have for others is to give them our lives. This is how we know what love is. Christ gave himself for us. Gave himself. Giving is central to walking. The power of generosity and giving in your life is central to walking. And I believe it's a cycle, a natural cycle in life that God has created everywhere we look. Timothy Jennings again says this about it. God's love, God's law of love is the outward flow of his personhood in the constant dispersion of himself to create, uphold, and sustain the universe. This giving, outward, most moving, other-centered love is the design on which all creation was constructed to operate. First John 3, 14 says this, the, uh, the way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as, as dead. Giving, giving is the key to life. My last illustration, look at the plants. 
we eat the plants, the cows eat the plants. Stuff comes from that that uh, Neville can tell you about that in farming, that we put over the plants to make them grow. The cycle goes again, the animals die, they go into the ground, the animals eat it, and so on. There's a cycle in life. Look at the water. There's a cycle in the clouds that comes down and we drink it and we use it and it's in the land and it's in the rivers and it's in the seas and there's a cycle in life. Even when I turn the electricity on, when I flick a switch, there's a circuit that when it's completed, it brings light. And when it's incomplete, the light stops. But the most important one is this, the cycle of the air that we breathe is a matter of give, give, give. We take in oxygen and we breathe out carbon dioxide. The plants take in carbon dioxide and they breathe out oxygen. Now you have a choice. You have the power over this matter. If you want to, please do not do this. Put a, somebody put a warning up on the screen. If you put a plastic bag over your head, you have the choice to stop that cycle. I will hold on to the power and authority. I will keep this carbon dioxide. What happens when you choose the wrong way? That's not the way of life. That's not the way of giving. That's not the way of community death. And the only way it can be restored is someone rips that bag open and restores the natural order of you giving away what you can't hold on to. We see the circle of love, or we could get into the song from uh, the circle of life. Everywhere we look around us, the rule of life of sacrificial giving for the betterment of the other. It's in every living system that we see. And if it's to be healthy, the circle cannot be broken. And so as we walk the way of Jesus, the way, this way is one of a cycle of love and sacrifice done in community with others. I see Jesus' life as an operator's manual. As I look as he lived and try to walk as he walked, I believe that as I operate and function as he did, I will live a life of fullness. But I have a choice to make. It's like me driving my diesel car. I can choose to read the manual and follow it and put the diesel in, or I can make my own choice and put petrol in, and there's going to be consequences. There's power in the choices that we make. There's power in the rituals, the law that comes over us instead of love. There's power in our own bias. There's power in what other people think of us. And there's power in love and sacrifice. I believe, and I'm finishing here, that the higher ways that God invites me and you to walk are al almost always involve, as someone put it, going lower. They involve walking humbly, loving mercy, preferring the other, giving away power and influence, and even rejoicing sometimes in suffering. It's a matter of decreasing so that Jesus may increase in my life. Following the way of Jesus, of Christ, means that everyone is equal. Everyone is equal in love. Everyone has equal value. Everyone is needed. Everyone has something to offer. Everyone has something to give. To give is to live. So this morning, as I close, can I ask you, what are you going to do with the power that you have to choose? What are you going to do with the power of the law over you versus the power of love that Jesus has instilled in you as he abides in you and you walk with him? What are you going to do with the power of your own bias? I find the best thing is to let others speak into my life about the biases that I have and to act on them. 
What about the power of others? What is it this week that you've been worried? What will other people think? What will other people say? I'll give you one quick example. There was a pajama party for Sarah's uh, school on Friday, and I would not let her go to Asda in her pajamas after in case people thought something about me in Asda. Simple power of bias. And lastly, the power of love and sacrifice. This week, show someone the amazing power of the Holy Spirit working in you by showing love and doing something sacrificially for them. Have a great week. Uh, don't think there's anybody up after me. Uh, is there? No? Um, enjoy whatever you're doing uh, over Easter, and there'll be some announcements up this week of uh, what we're going to be doing, the things we're going to be sharing together, and some resources there uh, for us all to uh, walk closer to the Father together. So enjoy your week. God bless.